0: Um, Hello everybody, uh, and Kia Ora. So today we will talk um, about the latest cycling trends and policies around the world and how we can make cycling, city cycling safe, practical and convenient for a broad spectrum of ages, genders and abilities. Uh, We have more than a thousand people registered for today's session. Welcome to you all and thanks for joining us. My name is Ekaterina, I'm a communications officer at Austroads, and I will be moderating today's session together with Richard Del Place, Ostrodes um, transport network operations program manager who will moderate the Q&A at the end of the webinar. First of all, I would like to acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting today. I pay my respect to all this past, present and emerging. I also acknowledge the Treaty of Waitani and Maori as the original people of New Zealand. Um, so today's session is uh, facilitated by Austroads in partnership with Cycling and Walking Australia and New Zealand, uh, We Ride Australia and the Heart Foundation. Um, Austroads is the collective of Australasian transport and traffic agencies with the focus to support its member organizations to deliver an improved road transport network. Um, cycling and Walking Australia and New Zealand is the Australasian peak group uh, for walking and bike riding on transport and recreation networks. Uh, members include senior and executive uh, level leaders from all Australian state and territory transport agencies, Waka New Zealand transport agencies, um, local government, and leading representative organizations for walking, cycling, health and mobility. WeRide Australia is the national independent voice for cycling in Australia. Uh, we Ride's mission is to build a healthy, sustainable future through advocacy, program development and research about the bicycle's role in environment, health, infrastructure and safety. And the Heart Foundation uh, aims to reduce heart disease and improve the heart health and quality of life of all Australians through their work and risk reduction, support, care and research um, and encouraging more Australians to be more active more often is core to uh, their mission. We Ride Australia and the Heart Foundation are both members of Cycling and Walking Australia and New Zealand. So a bit of housekeeping. Um, Our presenters will speak for 75 minutes and then we will have a Q&A session for 15 minutes. The slides uh, today's presentation is based on can be downloaded from the handout section of your sidebar which you will find on the right hand side of your screen. There's also a question section there so please send us your questions for the Q&A at any stage um, during the webinar. You can also use that same question box to let us know if you have any technical problems. But a quick tip, if you lose sound or your picture freezes, the issue is most likely with your internet connection. So leaving the session and rejoining it uh, via your registration link usually helps. Uh, This session is being recorded and we will let you know when the recording is available on our website. And if you listen to podcasts, you can find Austroats in your podcast app. So, it gives me great pleasure uh, to introduce our presenters for today, John Poker and Ralph Buller. Uh, John is Professor Emeritus in the School of Planning and Public Policy at Rutgers University New Jersey. And Ralph is Professor and Chair of the Department of Urban Affairs and Planning at Virginia Tech. So, welcome to our presenters and over to you, John.
1: Thank you very much, Ekaterina, for your kind introduction. Ralph and I would like to thank the entire team at Austroads for hosting this webinar. We would also like to thank Cycle Walk Australia, New Zealand, We Ride Australia, and the Heart Foundation of Australia for working with Austroads in setting up the webinar and publicizing today's presentation on cycling for sustainable cities. Ralph and I send truly heartfelt greetings and thanks to our many longtime Colleagues, co authors, and friends in Australia and New Zealand. And that includes the seven of you who contributed to the book we will be discussing today. Ever since my sabbatical year from 2005 to 2006 as visiting professor at the University of Sydney, I've had a space in my heart for those of you down under. I confess, however, that I felt on top of the world that year and i still miss seeing the southern cross in the night sky finally ralph and i thank all of you in the audience for taking the time to participate in this webinar now just a few words about me john Pucher. almost all of my research over the past four decades has involved international comparisons Of urban transportation that helps explain the international scope of our new book i think we can learn a lot from other countries about how to improve cycling conditions make cycling safer and raise cycling levels among all segments of the population and now over to ralph hello from from me as well My name
2: is is Ralph Bueller. I'm Professor and Chair of Urban Affairs and Planning at at Virginia Tech. I study determinants of travel behavior. So what what determines how people get around, if they walk, ride a bike, ride public transportation or or drive, and then probably more importantly, what are the implications on the economy, the environment, and and equity of these decisions. Uh, As with John, most of my work is international comparative, looking at what cities and countries can learn from each other. And that already gets us to the the presentation today because it's a collaboration of over 45 international experts in the area of bicycling from five continents uh, in the areas of planning, engineering, geography, and uh, public health. The book is titled uh, Cycling for Sustainable Cities as our presentation here. And the main theme is how to make city cycling safe and convenient for everyone. You already see on the title slides here that we mean both men and women we mean uh, the young and the old uh, we also mean all races and ethnicities and you can already see some of the measures that uh, need to be implemented to make uh, cycling safe and convenient for everyone the cover of our book uh, continues that theme of cycling uh, for everyone this is the cycling scene an everyday cycling scene from Amsterdam in the Netherlands so this is not a special cycling event or anything like that and you can see people cycle in their everyday clothes you can see that there are men and women cycling they have ordinary bicycles some of them are cargo bikes that have some uh, some capacity to, to, carry, uh, to carry bags and, and cargo and of course you also see a green light there on the traffic light uh, for bicycles. In the next couple of slides i briefly give an overview of the book uh, and then we'll start, John will start the, the actual uh, presentation, but we couldn't fit everything that's in the book into the, the presentation, so I wanna give you a little uh, a little overview. So the book starts with an introduction that John and I wrote, the first two chapters and in an international overview of cycling. Then chapter three is very important on cycling and health and it's uh, co-authored by uh, colleagues from Australia, uh, Jan Gerard uh, Chris Rissell, Adrian Bauman, and Billy Giles Corti. who you you may know uh, and who may be online. So hello to you. Um, Cycling safety um, is the next important topic on bicycling followed by bicycle infrastructure. And of course, those two are very closely uh, related. The next chapter then focuses on bicycle parking because bicycles are parked more than they are actually ridden, so an important topic. Chapter seven focuses on non-infrastructure programs and policies that help promote cycling. Chapter 8 looks at different evaluation techniques to make decisions on which bicycling policies to prioritize uh, in policy making. Chapter 9 and 10 look at bicycling and technology. The first one is on e-bikes and the second one is on bike sharing and its ongoing evolution. That's followed then by four chapters that look at different groups and bicycling. Uh, the first one written by uh, Jan Gerard again on um, women and, and cycling, followed by a chapter on children and bicycling, and then followed by a chapter on uh, uh, on older adults, where again, uh, Jen Gerard and Chris Rissell were, were involved from Australia. Chapter 14 then puts a, a book a bookend onto these chapters by focusing on social justice and the importance of social justice and bicycling. Next, we have case studies of bicycling, starting with the two, pop, two most populous countries in the world, uh, China and India, followed by a chapter on bicycling in Latin America. The next chapters are city case studies, starting with the uh, large mega cities of New York, London, and Paris, bicycling there, followed by the two large European legacy bicycling cities with the tradition of bicycling Copenhagen and Amsterdam. And then that's followed with a comparison of policy implementation in two newcomers, uh, two newcomer cities to bicycling uh, Portland, Oregon, and Seville, in Spain. Uh, The second to the last chapter looks at bicycling advocacy and the importance of it. And again, two co-authors from Australia there, Fiona Campbell and and Peter Burke. Uh, And then the last chapter, John and I sort of summarize the book and look to the future of bicycling.
1: Where am I? (laughs) There I am. (laughs) I was, hold on folks. Okay, now you can see me, folks. <laughs> Was it worth the wait? <laughs> okay, the, the word uh, sustainable uh, is in a title of, uh, for a very good reason, uh, and that is uh, uh, we examine the issue the theme of sustainability throughout the book literally in every single chapter and in various dimensions Uh, and come to the conclusion that cycling is a very sustainable means of getting around our cities Uh, maybe even the most sustainable but certainly very sustainable uh, in virtually every dimension Uh, on this slide you'll see uh, three of those dimensions environmental sustainability is probably the most obvious aspect of bicycling's uh, sustainability uh, virtually no pollution uh, in cycling uh, and very few, little in the way of non-renewable resources used uh, to make bikes uh, and uh, certainly much less than any other modes of transportation except walking uh, cy- cycling is also economically sustainable so you have both uh, low private and public costs it doesn't cost that much to buy a uh, 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 sort of a reasonable standard bike. Uh, and it certainly doesn't cost much to use a bike. Uh, public costs are also low. That's an important consideration. It costs much less to build a bike lane, uh, even a protected bike lane or a bike path than it does to build a new roadway and, It's also less expensive than building public transit. I'm a big friend of public transit, but bicycling actually uh, does cost less to the public uh, than public transit does. Uh, And improved health, uh, many studies have now estimated this, that uh, improved health from cycling saves a lot in the way of medical costs, both for the individual and for society uh, as a whole. Uh, Social sustainability is probably an aspect of sustainability that people think of the least. Uh, What do we mean by this? Well, it's it's equitable. It's socially just. That is, it's financially affordable by virtually anybody. Uh, In addition to which it's physically possible for most people. There are exceptions. There are certain kinds of disabilities. And once you get above a certain age, probably, or or you're below a certain age, uh, cycling is is not so feasible. But for most people, it is physically possible. Uh, I think one of the most important messages of this book is cycling is healthy. Uh, chapter three, which is co-authored by our wonderful uh, world-renowned colleagues Jan Gerard, Gerard, it is uh, Adrian Bowen, Billy Giles, Corti, and uh, Chris Russell. Truly, whether you know it or not, they're down under. They are truly world-renowned, and they are the experts on the health benefits of cycling. Uh, well, they review hundreds of studies that have been done, uh, scientific studies over the past uh 20 or so years and virtually all of them come to the same conclusion there are very significant health benefits of cycling they are physical health benefits there are mental health benefits there are environmental health benefits and there are social health benefits Uh, and those health benefits all of those combined physical mental social and environmental far 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 offset the potential risks of traffic injuries uh, that come along uh, with cycling. And something that's important is that chapter three is for the population as a whole. Chapter 13 is for older adults like me. I'm 70 years old and I would know. (laughs) And as it turns out, even looking at older adults, that the physical, mental and social health benefits also for us uh, exceed the, the injury risks. Uh, and what I found the most astounding is that the mental and social health benefits, in a way, were some of the most important of all, and yet they're they're usually not even considered. So cycling is indeed a wonderful mode of transportation. Uh, incredibly, English-speaking countries have the lowest rates of uh, bicycling. Uh, this this slide shows a, a percentage of trips by bike in various countries of the world. And you will see all of those countries on the left are English speaking countries, Anglo countries, uh, at least in, in their origins. Uh, and we have uh, uh, about a half to two percent of trips by bike. And you might think, well, does the English language itself, is that responsible for cycling so little at the answer? No. <laughs> And it's no, because in 1950, the percentage of trips by bike in the UK was 15 percent. That is higher than the current percentage of bicycling in Germany today, which is 11 percent. So much for that. I can tell you what has led to such a low rate of, uh, of cycling in the UK. I did a survey of British colleagues to find this out. And it would deliver there were deliberate policies to promote cars, to promote motorways, more roadways, and allow sprawl. And that's really what did it for the UK, going from 15% down to 1.7%. Uh going to the more optimistic, the more positive part of the uh the uh, that chart, you'll see the Netherlands, aren't uh, no big surprise, 28%, almost a third of all trips by bike, uh, 14% in Denmark. Um By the way, Denmark gets a lot of attention here, which is great, but note that the percentage trips by bike in Netherlands is twice what it is in Denmark. Japan might surprise you, 13% of all trips by bike in Japan and 17% of trips by bike in greater Tokyo, 11% in Germany and so forth. But the point simply is uh, that we have a huge variation here in percentage of trips by bike. And it's not due to differences in per capita income, uh, I can tell you that in the Netherlands, Denmark, and, and Germany, and Sweden, and so forth, uh, CH is Switzerland, by the way, uh, they have very, very high per capita incomes, higher than some of the countries here, these English-speaking countries to so the left. Uh, so they're certainly not cycling out of poverty. Uh, they're not forced to do so. Th- these are democracies. Um, they're technologically advanced. So uh, it's due to public policies, due to uh, the infrastructure provisions for cycling, and various other programs we'll be discussing in this uh, Uh, in this presentation one point I'd like to make is that for Canada and Australia there are no national travel surveys so these trips are from the census and they are only as a percentage of trips to work or actually it's a percentage of workers how they get to uh, to work uh, and those are the percentages by bike whereas for the other countries all these countries to the left are all uh, national travel surveys for all trip purposes next and this is the reason Australia is not included in this slide because you don't have a national travel survey and this is looking at uh, trip distances uh, by bike for all uh, all kinds of trip purposes uh, including shopping and and so forth and so on visiting friends recreation Uh, you can see that the United States uh, as well as the UK have extraordinarily low levels of cycling at every single trip distance so what this what this chart does is it controls for trip distance as it looks within each trip distance category and it asks okay within that trip distance category now compare across countries what you see is the percentage trips by bike in germany denmark and the netherlands is 10 times 15 times 20 times higher than it is in the united states and the uk so even controlling for trip distance, you have much, much higher percentages of trips by bike. And for the United States, it's a disgrace. Uh, here you, you might think, oh, all those car-oriented, sprawled American metropolitan areas, how could you possibly bike in, in such, uh, with that sort of land use? Well, it turns out that uh, the, all of the three most recent travel surveys, and I show that 40% of all trips in American metropolitan areas, as sprawled as they are, are two miles or shorter, certainly a distance that can be covered by bike. So don't make trip distance the, the culprit in all of this. The good news here is even in uh, Canada and the United States and Australia, we do have increasing uh, percentages of trips by bike, as called the mode shares is usually the term that's used, but simply a percentage of all trips by bike. And what you can see is, and by the way, these are comparable now for city by city, just so you know, for the United States, Canada and Australia, these are all as a percentage of work trips Uh, because the long story, but they're comparable. Uh, and what you can see here is for from for many of these cities that started from a very low cycling level, they had no tradition of cycling, no culture of cycling, uh, that you had big increases. Now, Melbourne wasn't exactly a huge increase, but it was almost a doubling, 1.1% in 1996 to 1.9% in 2016 but you can see there are other uh, cities that uh, had very little bicycling before, and they've done much, much better. I'm sorry, don't be angry with me, Melbourne, <laughs> but they've done much better than Melbourne uh, with increases up to uh, 10 times, even, uh, yeah, 10 times. If you look at uh, Seville, uh, Sevilla, Spain, you have 10-fold increases in cycling. Uh, then you go to the right part of this chart, uh, and there's sort of the usual suspects except for one. <laughs> So uh, looking at Amsterdam and Copenhagen, what is astounding is they started out with a very high level of cycling to begin with, uh, roughly 20% of all trips uh, in uh, was it 1995, or 1990 for Amsterdam. Uh, so actually, uh, it's interesting, Denmark and Netherlands were almost the same about 20 years ago. Right? Uh, now look what's happened. Uh, Amsterdam is way up to uh, 36% of all trips. Uh, and Denmark increased to 29% of all trips. So even those two cities, which had already fairly high level of cycling, had big growth. I mean, that's a lot of growth uh, when you're looking at uh, Copenhagen and Amsterdam. Uh, looking at, at uh, Munich and Berlin, you have roughly a doubling of cycling uh, mode share in, in Berlin and a big increase in Munich. Uh, now look at Frankfurt, that, that's circled for a reason. No one in the right mind in Germany would ever have thought that Frankfurt was a bicycling-friendly city. In fact, it was considered one of the least bicycling-friendly cities in all of Germany. Well, over the past 20 years, uh, the city of Frankfurt, prompted by its citizens, by the way, uh, implemented all sorts of measures not only infrastructure, but all sorts of programs and slowing down of car speeds, traffic calming of neighborhoods. And would you look at what Frankfurt accomplished in 20 years, they went from 4% or 5% of all trips on bike to 20%. They quadrupled the level of cycling in the least friendly cycling city in all of Germany. And in fact, uh, Ralph has done an extensive study here. But the one thing that's really interesting is they recently held a public referendum in Frankfurt And the citizens of Frankfurt overwhelmingly passed it saying, we insist that our politicians implement measures to improve cycling and further race cycling and make Frankfurt the capital of cycling in Germany. If Frankfurt can do it, so can Australia, Melbourne, Sydney, Perth, Brisbane. Take a look. Okay. Next slide. I get carried away by this, folks.
2: We saw some of the the impact or the potential of uh, of bicycling during the COVID pandemic this graph is based on data from eco counter they have bicycle counters along bike paths trails and certain corridors and it's aggregated by country on the horizontal axis you see the week of the year in 2020 and it compares bicycling levels at these counters in 2020 relative to 2019 whenever the colorful lines here are above the zero here. It means there was more cycling in 2020 compared to 2019. And we see overall, the lines tend to be above uh, the zero. Of course, we also see the big dip here around week 14 through week 18, week 19 of the year. And these are big declines in bicycling due to lockdowns. During these periods in certain countries, you were not allowed to to leave your home or you were only allowed to leave your home with a a special card where you had written the destination where you're going or you were confined to be within a certain distance from your home during these times, these lockdowns, bicycling declined, but then also you see when the lockdowns are lifted, bicycling is sort of skyrocketing right after that. Um, Looking in more detail at these uh, data, we saw overall increases in cycling volumes and uh, an increase in the bicycle share of trips. Um, Even in places where bicycling didn't increase, the bike share of trips increased because public transport and also other modes of transport were were way down, uh, increasing the share of trips made uh, by bicycle. But there was a lot of variation, as we already saw in the graph before, by month, by time of day, by location and by trip purpose. In general, we saw increases for exercise, recreational cycling, getting outdoors and relief from stress. That's also confirmed by by surveys of people who said during the COVID pandemic, they cycled uh, to relieve relieve stress. We saw increases in afternoon and early evening cycling, and even stronger increases in bicycling on on weekends. Uh, The largest increases were along counters on off-road recreational paths. not in areas leading to downtowns along uh, commercial corridors or corridors that lead to a lot of workplaces and that's where we see the decrease that's uh, in uh, utilitarian trips and of course we see that in in the morning peak hour because people were not cycling to work people were not cycling to school they were not cycling to university they were doing all of these things remotely and from uh, from home it was not only that um Travel behavior changed, but cities also changed during the COVID pandemic. Uh, this is uh, the Rue de Rivoli in, in Paris that uh, was converted into a cycling street. It was a project that was ongoing, almost complete when the the pandemic uh, started. And you can see there how most of the Rue de Rivoli is for cyclists now. It's very popular. On the left, you see one more lane that's sort of left for for buses and other vehicles on top of that the city of paris has now just this year reduced the speed limit on most streets not all to 19 miles per hour 30 kilometers um, uh, per hour uh, citywide This is an example from Montreal. In Canada, they installed about 70 kilometers of new or improved cycling facilities in 2020. um, Most of them with physical separation from motor vehicle traffic. We see one of those here uh, with these orange uh, not not permanent bollards that will be replaced. And as you can see, it's so safe that entire families um, ride their bikes there. These are pictures from the United States. what happened sort of worldwide and in many many cities, we have closed streets as on the upper right, where motor vehicle traffic was banned. We have outdoor dining on the upper left with a car travel lane taken out and car parking taken out and the contraflow bike lane on the left to the yellow color uh, painting there um, put put in. Uh, At the bottom, we see um, neighborhood streets that were closed to through traffic or only local traffic was allowed and traffic then had to share the roadway with pedestrians, cyclists, inline skaters, uh, et cetera. So the use of space changed. This is an example from Boylston Street in, in Boston. And that sort of happened in, uh, in, in many cities during the COVID pandemic, a pop-up bike lane was installed. You see the, the cones they, they put in there. And it was very popular, many cyclists using that route. And based on the popularity today, Boylston Street has a two-way uh, cycle track that has been made uh, permanent. Similar story here in, um, in Vancouver, in, in Canada, you can see the cones here to the right for this pop-up bike lane. They had over 10,000 bicyclists on several days in summer 2020. And then later then they converted it to protected bike lane with concrete curbs. Where You see the cones there, there is now a concrete curb. And it remains one of Vancouver's busiest uh, cycling routes. So during the pandemic, travel behavior changed and cities changed how they accommodated bicycling.
1: Latin America is an important part of the world, 680 million residents, and yet it's been almost completely ignored until now uh, by uh, transportation researchers, uh, which is a pity. Uh, but uh, anyway, we have an entire chapter on cycling in Latin American cities. It's co authored by three Latin Americans, uh, professors of transportation and urban planning, uh, and they uh, have spent the last 20 years collecting data from various Latin American cities on transportation in general, on urban travel, um, and of course, including both walking and cycling. Uh, there's no national travel survey in any of the Latin American countries, so you're really required to, to use, forced to use the city data instead. And what you see is a huge variation uh, from virtually 0% in, in big cities even, uh, Quito, Lima, Valparaiso, uh, all the way up to 7%, uh, 8% in, uh, in Bogota, Guadalajara, Rosario is uh, 5%. So big, big, big variation from one city to another. Th- these figures might not look so so large, but what is really impressive is to what extent these cities have increased levels of cycling. Um, and for the some of these cities we do have have time trend data. Uh, the most dramatic here is Bogota, Colombia. That's an 11-fold increase in percentage of trips by bike in, uh, it was about 20 years or so for most of these. Uh, in Santiago de Chile, uh, the biggest city in Chile, you have almost a doubling from 2% to almost 4%. And looking at Buenos Aires, again, the major city of Argentina, you have a nine-fold increase in cycling. So they did this by implementing very impressive expansions and improvements and connections in their um, uh, bike infrastructure, the bike paths, bike lanes, uh, improved intersections, and so forth. So you make the effort, and it really turns out to be possible. Build it and they will come. China, I'm sorry to say, and those of you in Australia have a very close relations with China, I remember, um, you're, you're much closer than we are. Uh, the bad story is is that there's been a big, big decrease in cycling in Chinese cities. These are among the very largest uh, cities in China here, uh, and several of them are megacities, such as Beijing, Shanghai, and so forth, uh, in all of them a big, big, big decrease in cycling over time. And the decrease is larger than what you're seeing because, uh, I guess you'd call it sort of the the darker green color uh, is the most recent um, year. Uh, It includes e-bikes. And in China, unlike Europe and unlike North America, e-bikes are 95% are simply electric scooters, sit down electric scooters without pedals even. I'm not sure I would categorize that as bicycles. Uh, And these are all based on city surveys, which are not necessarily uniform, but just looking at each of these individual cities. You can't compare that much among the cities, but you can see big, big declines. Why? That's the really important question, why? Number one, big, big, very impressive economic growth in China, as we all know, over the last uh, two or three decades. Uh, that's led to big increases in per capita income and those big increases of per capita income have led to big increases in car ownership Uh, and the government has seen this as a really great way to promote the economy and the automobile industry so they've decided to accommodate it and facilitate it encourage it building more and more roadways humongous motorways They have three or four beltways uh, in Beijing, so they really expanded the supply of roadways. And on the roads that already existed, they often um, shifted the use of the roadway. They took away space from the cyclists, reducing the bike lanes. On some streets, cycling isn't even allowed, uh, and instead gave that space then over to cars. So big, big investment, sort of a car-oriented infrastructure and uh, there's another factor as well and that is as these these cities have been growing very fast so not only in population but also in land area so as they've been spreading further and further out trip distances have increased and the longer the trip distance is other things being equal the more difficult it is to cover by bike so these cities have gotten so big uh, that many trip distances are simply too hard Uh, to cover uh, by bike. Another big uh, factor here is a big competition from public transport. Uh, Chinese cities, uh, helped by the central government, have made massive, truly massive investments in their public transport systems. That's great, by the way, I'm all in favor of public transport. Um, They are now six of the 10 largest metro systems in the world are among these large chinese cities so they have really invested in public transit not just metro systems in bus rapid transit systems brt and all other kinds of uh, public transportation so public transportation has also become a bigger competitor to cycling uh, and if as if that's not enough uh, you also have a problem of air pollution as you surely know, uh, the Chinese cities are among the most polluted in the world. So cycling has become uh, not only uh, less less uh, less uh, less safe, or you're you're breathing this polluted air, which is uh, both uh, unpleasant, but it also, it also is unhealthy. That also discourages cycling. Last is all that car traffic makes it more and more dangerous to ride your bicycles on the roadway. So that's really the the reason for this decline. China, the central government has decided, well, this doesn't look so great for Chinese sustainability policies. So they're trying to turn things around, but right now it's just a big, big decline. Uh, The other thing I'll note, two other things. One is in China, there is no gender gap. There are as many women cycling as men cycling. Point number two is all of these trips are utilitarian trips. Uh, People in China who bike uh, are not bicycling for recreation or exercise uh, or even stress relief. They're bicycling to get from point A to point B. Yeah, John, we have to speed up a bit. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. Now we go to India. Uh, India, another very important country. Uh, India and China together uh, are the two most populous countries in the world. Uh, about 20% of all trips uh, in India are by bike. Uh, and you might be surprised, it's a little bit higher in rural areas, 22% compared to 18% in urban areas. And if you look at the population, uh, how it sort of varies by size, um, for about 100,000 population to 2 million, there's almost no difference. It's 20, 21% in all of those population size categories. Then you go to 2 to 5 million, and it goes down to 16%. You go to uh, 5 million or larger, and it goes down to about 9%. Why would that be? it is that in the larger cities uh, those last two categories and the biggest one in particular you have much much better public transit not necessarily good but much better public transit than in the smaller cities in fact many of the smaller cities have virtually no public transit Um, the other issue is in the larger cities similar to the case in china you have very large population growth And also growth in the area of the metropolitan area. And that means, again, increasing trip distances. Uh, So that partly explains this variation among cities. Two points, just as I end up the same way I did with China. Uh, Number one, in this case, there's a humongous gender gap. So you have the rate of cycling by men is about six times higher than the rate of cycling by women. Too too complicated to explain that here. The other issue is it's all utilitarian cycling, just as it is in China. Next. And as oh. as John has has alluded, there is a gender
2: gap in in India. The gender gap in cycling can also be found in Australia, the UK, the US, and Canada, but only about one quarter to one-third of all bike trips are made by women. That compares to Austria, Germany and Sweden where we have about parity 50% men and 50% women and then in Denmark, the Netherlands and Japan we have the majority of bike trips uh, being made uh, by women. Uh, These pictures here are from uh, Denmark and from the Netherlands showing you the high participation rate in in bicycling of of women. Uh, Promoting cycling for everyone means promoting bicycling for men as well as for women but it also means promoting cycling for all ages and as these pictures here show you is we can cycle at Almost any age. Uh, we may need uh, special bicycles as we see with the tricycle there and the upper part of the of the slide for the for the young children, or as we get older, we may need a, a tricycle as we see at the center at the center bottom. but even there uh, the sp- the space between the two wheels is used as a cargo storage for you to, to transport things. We can of course cycle for utilitarian purposes but also for recreational purposes, as we see in the lower right with these older adults going for a, a recreational bike ride. Cycling varies by age in all of the countries we've looked at. Um, If you look at the bike share of trips, um, you see that in each country that the the tallest bar is for those that are not at driving age yet. Uh, Once you reach driving age, uh, bicycling share of trips drops in all of the countries. If we focus on the left side on the US and the UK, we see a that bicycling is much lower for all age groups, but also that it Um, decreases continuously uh, as uh, the population ages and reaches less than 1% of all trips uh, made by bicycle for those 70 years and older. If we look at Japan and Germany, we see that there is this initial drop once you reach driving age, but then cycling sort of stays stable at 12% for all age groups in Japan and at 10% for the age groups in in Germany. In Denmark, we have a little bit of a decline, but we still have 10% of all trips uh, made by bicycle for those 70 years and older. If we then go all the way to the right to the Netherlands, we see that one quarter of all the trips of those 70 years and older are made by uh, by bicycle so we can truly cycle uh, into older age if the conditions are right and the policies are right and we'll talk about that later in the presentation. Um, we have a chapter in the book on the growth in uh, e-bikes and e-bike sales in Europe. The data in the book end in 2018. If we were to extend these trends, we would see the upward trend that we see for all of these countries being even, even steeper and even more. Many e-bikes sold during the COVID pandemic uh, and after it. Most of the e-bikes here are pedelecs. These are electric bicycles where you get power, electric power support only uh, when you pedal. Uh, they come in different classes. Um, one, one class uh, has a speed up to 20 miles per hour. The other class goes
1: up to 28 uh, miles per hour. Cyclic safety is absolutely crucial. Uh, all surveys show when you ask people why don't you ride a bike, uh, the number one answer by far is people don't think it's safe. So it is really crucial uh, to make cycling safer and to convey also the perception that cycling is being made safer. Uh, that's particularly the case, as surveys show, for the young because parents aren't going to let their kids uh, cycle out uh, on the street if they think uh, it's it's unsafe. It's true for older adults, uh, like me, um, because I'm more risk averse and my reflexes are slower than they used to be. I can't hear or see as well as I used to be able to. Uh, So cycling safety is important to me. It's important for anyone with disabilities. Uh, It's important for anyone who's timid or or risk averse. And all all surveys show that women uh, are more sensitive to safety, cycling safety, than men are. Uh, Women are more likely to take uh, Roundabout routes to avoid heavy traffic, whereas men are more likely to travel through it. Uh, if you look, as we will in just a second, uh, the, the level of cycling safety standardized for amount of cycling, uh, the level of, of stand, the level of cycling safety in the Netherlands, Denmark, and Germany uh, probably explains, uh, it, it, maybe it's the main explanation for the higher levels of cycling there, as we'll see in this graph you'll see a very, very strong relationship between cycling safety and levels of cycling. So on the vertical axis, you have cyclist fatalities per 100 billion kilometers cycled, and on the uh, horizontal axis, kilometers cycled per person per year. Well, when you look at this, you can see the United States is the big loser. Uh, we have the least cycling and the most dangerous cycling. Uh, the Netherlands is the big winner, uh, has the most cycling and the safest cycling. Um, but what if the, what are the directions of causation? It turns out there's there's two different possible directions. One is, uh, as governments, uh, as cities in, in invest in safer cycling infrastructure, in, in policies to, to reduce car speeds, to traffic calm neighborhoods, um, that cycling becomes safer. And as cycling becomes safer, you get more cycling. So it's that safer cycling leads to more cycling. But there's another direction Uh, and it's been examined uh, in some detail, and that is uh, something called safety in numbers. And that is uh, the more cycling you get, the safer cycling becomes. How would that be? How would that work? Well, uh, the more cycling you have, the more visible cyclists become. so you see more you're more likely motorists will see cyclists on the roadway they're more likely to see the, mo- the the cyclists and to drive in a way i would hope that would try to avoid endangering the cyclists they're not an unusual site they're not an unexpected site and so motorists are more become more used to dealing with them uh, another issue is that um, uh, consider the following in the netherlands maybe 95 percent of all the dutch are cyclists uh, that means that virtually every Dutch motorist is also a cyclist and that means that that motorist is going to be fully aware that cyclists are more vulnerable than a motorist and they're going to drive accordingly with more respect for cyclists uh, and uh, with with greater care vis-a-vis cyclists. The last factor in safety and numbers is the more cyclists you have the more public and political support you have for Uh, Getting politicians and government agencies to implement uh, pro-bike policies of various kinds, not just infrastructure, but also complementary programs, which Ralph will be talking about later. We have some good news and some bad news in this slide uh these uh, we, we didn't leave out australia because we don't like australia it's just that we had to have a national travel survey with all trip purposes that reported on kilometers of travel so what you're seeing here is a cyclist fatality rates per 100 million kilometers cycled and you see vast improvement uh, look at the uk you have a tripling in cycling safety uh, so what's shown here is the 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 rate the cyclist fatality rate it's about a third now of what it used to be in the uk that's progress tripling in cycling safety of the uk you have a doubling in cycling safety in germany and denmark at about a 60 percent uh, improvement in the netherlands but in germany denmark and the Netherlands, is all uh, much 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 safer um, than in the united states which is six times higher six times more dangerous per kilometer cycle than in germany denmark the netherlands And the really astounding thing here is it's gotten worse over time in the United States. Why? You can see it went rose uh, from 4.5 to 6.0 over the last two time periods. Well, there's about six reasons. Let's see if I can come up with all of them. Number one, a big increase over this period in vehicle miles or kilometers of motor vehicles uh, vehicles traveled. Um, Second you have a big increase, far larger than in these European countries, a big, big increase in light trucks used as personal vehicles. And I mean, mega pickup trucks, minivans, and sport utility vehicles, SUVs. And all of the studies that we looked at showed the bigger the personal vehicle, the more da- bigger the vehicle of any kind, actually, the greater the danger uh, of injuring or killing uh, the cyclist. So that's another reason. Uh, Yet another reason is that there's been a big increase in drink driving or driving under the influence of drugs in the United States, and it's been a more serious problem, a bigger increase, that is, than that has been the case in these other countries. In fact, rates of drink driving have fallen in the UK, Germany, Denmark, and the Netherlands, whereas they've been rising in the United States distracted driving is yet another factor. And in the United States, it is truly epidemic proportions. There is no enforcement whatsoever of any kind um, of the existing laws, there are laws to prevent it, of texting while driving or using your, your mobile phone while driving. Uh, it's it's just people, the drivers are not paying attention. So this the increase, the big increase in distracted driving is a big factor in the United States. Lastly, Uh, there's been an increase in speeding exceeding the speed limit uh, has the percentage of motorists exceeding the speed limit has increased over this period and as it turns out the united states has compared to these four european countries much much higher average speed limits um, than these other countries do so not only are our speed limits higher but american motorists speed or exceed those speed limits even uh, much much more so than do these europeans next well we have a whole chapter looking at uh, New York London and Paris three really important international cities uh, and the good news is we've had big increases um, We have about a uh, almost well, a three and a half fold increase in New York. Uh, This as a percentage of trips of all trips by bicycle. Uh, In London, it's a doubling. And in Paris, the big winner here is a 12 fold increase. It is amazing. And what's most amazing is in 1991, Paris had the lowest rate of cycling of any of these three cities. And now they have a rate that's over twice as high as these other two cities. So Paris has really done a great job. And along with that increase in the levels of cycling, you have a decrease in uh, fatalities and serious injuries with serious injuries being defined as overnight hospitalizations. Um, I don't wanna compare across the cities. Oh, it does make Paris look really good. But for various reasons, the injury statistics are not always 100% comparable like cities. The big point to see in this graph is in every single one of these three cities, there's been a very significant decline both in fatality rates and in serious injury rates that's progress and this is one of the ways they've got a big 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 expansion in fully protected cycling facilities recognize these big band Eiffel Tower uh, well these are the sorts of facilities they're completely separated from motor vehicle traffic uh, they' are, they feel less They're they're lower stress, they feel more comfortable to cycle on, and they are just outright safer. They are protected from motor vehicle traffic. And just by the way, lest you wonder, uh, over 95% of cyclist fatalities are involving motor vehicles. Separating cycling from motor vehicles is key. In New York, uh, this is a view of Ninth Avenue looking south. It looks a little bit different kind of a facility, but it is also physically separated from motorists um so that you well you could see here how well it works um not only that this shows an intersection and it's really important here you'll note the cyclist gets the green light and the motorist gets a red light for left hand turns and that's crucial because there are many cyclists who are killed or seriously injured by right or left turning motor vehicles well this sort of Uh, sort of intersection treatment really reduces that sort of danger. It doesn't eliminate it, but it certainly reduces it. It's been very, very successful, and it's one of the reasons for greater safety and greater levels of, uh, of cycling. This is uh, a picture of uh, morning commute. These are not recreational cyclists. This is London, uh, it's near Blackfires or on, ah, actually Blackfriars Bridge. Uh, used to be called Cycle Super Highway 6, as you can see on the pavement there. And now they've rebranded this as simply the North-South Cycleway. But you can see it is also completely separated, physically separated from the motor vehicle traffic and heavily used, very successful and very popular with cyclists. It is important not only to get over bridges uh, for cyclists uh, have have this that cycleway over the bridge. Um, it's also important under bridges. And so this is uh, really close to that same uh, intersection. Uh, this is going under. Black Bridge. Uh, and you can see here, uh, it's it completely separated again from the motor vehicle traffic. And looking at that little insert to the upper right, it's a good thing it is. Imagine you're a cyclist going into that tunnel. Uh, you, It's a good thing you have that separation. Uh, they just need to, to replace those light bulbs, those lights so you could see where you're going. But anyway, it's a nice, a great idea. It's really important in any of these tunnels to have separate facilities as well. So
2: how can we, um... Encourage more cycling while improving its safety. And John has already alluded to the importance of better cycling facilities, and we'll look at that in in a minute in in more detail. But there's also traffic calming of residential neighborhoods, um, reducing traffic volumes and traffic speeds so that cyclists can share the roadway with motorists. Mixed use zoning to keep trip distances uh, short enough uh, for bicycling. Integrating bicycling with public transport to facilitate longer trip distances. Restrictions on motor vehicle use in terms of uh, speed, access and parking, improved traffic education for motorists, but also for cyclists, traffic regulations that protect cyclists and enforcement of those. And then of course, special events and promotional campaigns to win new riders and make make riding fun. Uh, This graph here shows you about 20 cities in, uh, in, in North America, South America, Europe, and I think in Australia as well and um, it shows you in the light blue color here the growth in their, their networks of bicycling facilities over about a 20 year time uh, period in all of these cities during the same time period bicycling levels have also increased there's a lot of variability here mainly because of the size of the network the city had when they started and the levels of cycling they had when they started but what they all have in common is that um, the cyclist fatality and severe injury rates dropped sharply relative to cycling levels so cycling per kilometer or cycling per bike trip has gotten safer in all of these in all of these cities one of the key measures they implemented, as John already already showed, are so-called cycle tracks or protected bike lanes. This shows you the trend for the United States. This is nationwide. About a 14-fold increase from 2006 to 2018. If you were to extend it to 2021, we would say con- see continued and even uh, sharper increases after uh, 2018. What do these um, cycle tracks look like? Uh, they look different in different countries and different cities Uh, on the upper left we have Copenhagen if you look at the center of the picture there you see the little curb right left to that uh, pink uh, motor vehicle there. there's a little curb that separates the cycle track from the roadway and there will be another curb uh, separating the cycle track from the pedestrian walkway on the upper right we see Bogota and Colombia with these orange or yellow caps here that are separating the two-way cycle track from motorized traffic Montreal is the the city that uh, first had a network of cycle tracks in uh, in North America, and they are separating their cyclists with these concrete curbs, as you see here to the left, from motorized traffic. In uh, Sevilla, in Spain, uh, they're using a fence here to separate cyclists from uh, motorized traffic. This gives you a, a sense of what a roadway feels with and without a, a separated cycle track. This is in Vancouver and we have a cyclist in traffic. You see a little bit of a bike icon there on the street, but clearly uh, the cyclist is in the middle of traffic. And then after, after installing these planters to separate cyclists from motor vehicles, you get a completely different feel of the facility. And you're also able to attract different types of riders who would not be, be comfortable riding in the condition shown on the, on the left here. Uh, this is a cycle track in in Toronto on Sherbourne Road. There, it looks a little bit like in uh, Copenhagen. We have a little curb separating the cycle track from the motorized uh, motorized traffic there. Um, these may uh, look familiar to you. These are uh, cycle tracks in Sydney and in Brisbane, separating cyclists from uh, uh, motorized traffic with curbs and uh, and greenery and and flower beds. On the upper left, uh, we have an important element for cycling and that's bridges, bicycling bridges or elements of bridges that are for cyclists. And that's because uh, highways, uh, rivers, but also parts of harbors and ports can be big Uh, hindrances for cyclists uh, to cross. Cyclists are not comfortable to share uh, bridges with fast moving or high levels of motorized traffic simply because there's no way to go if a car uh, encroaches on you. There are concrete barriers to the side of the bridge. So uh, building bridges for bicyclists or building bicycling elements to bridges is uh, is crucial. Uh, What we also found in in our research uh, is the emergence of bicycle expressways they still look different in different places, but essentially they are bicycle routes that connect the hinterlands to the city and they can also run uh, through cities. Here we see one in, in Freiburg, Germany on the upper left um, on the bicycle expressway, bicyclists are separated from pedestrians. So cyclists can can, can cycle faster and pedestrians are protected. In addition, at intersections, uh, where roadways are crossed you always have a bridge or you have a tunnel uh, along the bicycle expressway. This does two things. First, it uh, Facilitates faster cycling because you do not have to wait at these intersections But second and probably more importantly it eliminates the traffic danger at these intersections because you're crossing over or you're going uh, under uh, In the center bottom here, we see an elevated uh, uh, bicycle Expressway in Beijing, China is part of the effort that John alluded to that the central government in China tries to push bicycling and help cities to promote cycling. And this is a, a, a cycle expressway that's completely separated. It's above above the city, uh, so to speak, to facilitate safe and, and faster uh, bicycling. In the US we have some of these facilities where pedestrians and cyclists are separated but only on certain stretches for example at the Cherry Creek Trail in Denver or in certain cities in in, in Minneapolis where the the Midtown Greenway has a separation of the pedestrians to the right and the cyclists to the left of that white line but more typically we have these like the Minuteman Trail in Boston on the lower right here these mixed use trails where pedestrians and cyclists are, uh, are together in the same space. It's a very nice facility in uh, Santa Barbara, where they have taken out two car travel lanes uh, to install a, a contraflow bike bike path and a walkway uh, to the right. Very popular facility t- today. Um, another example here: the Lakefront Trail in uh, in Chicago. Um, Over 100,000 users on typical summer weekends, a very nice facility, two-way traffic for pedestrians, two-way traffic for for bicycles. And you see how close it is to downtown, so this is not just a facility that is used uh, for recreation, but also for long distance uh, bike commuting and daily uh, bike commuting. Again, from Chicago, the importance of uh, bridges or flyovers, this is a connection in this lakefront trail that we just looked at that avoids congested and dangerous intersections at grand and illinois avenues you don't always have to go over you can also go under this is a bikeway underpass uh, at uc uh, santa barbara with lots of cyclists Um, the new trend is to not just focus on the links of the network on the bikeways along the network would also add the intersections, and this is sort of a Dutch, a Dutch import uh, to the US. It's a Dutch-style protected intersection that was installed in Salt Lake City in 2015, and this is a Google, uh, a Google, a Google uh, image. Um, and these protected intersections essentially work. Through these would be dubbed here safety islands. What they do is, is the following: if a motor vehicle uh, wants to make a right-hand turn, safety island forces them to travel into the intersection and then make a turn, so that it cannot cut cut the corner here and make a quick turn to the right. What this does is it increases the visibility of the cyclist because the motorist travels farther into the intersection and it also slows down the motorist when they make that right hand turn there so that at the point where the cyclist or the vehicle may collide, the motorist is really slow which allows both uh, to avoid the crash or if there is a crash, it's of lower impact. In addition, the two safety islands um, shorten the distance, the cyclist is exposed to the potential risk uh, of motor vehicles. And then once the cyclist is across, they can continue straight or they start queuing here and wait for a green light to make a two-stage left turn. This shows you that a bike path and lane network of the city of Amsterdam. It's a truly connected network in a large city. Everything in red here is a bike path or bike lane. You may also detect some elements that are orange. These are a planned bike paths and bikeways. And on top of that, of course, you have traffic calm neighborhood streets where cyclists can share the roadway uh, with motorists. So this is a truly connected network. And keep in mind that Amsterdam is not the best bicycling city in the Netherlands. Many Dutch people may actually tell you that Amsterdam is not that great because they have much greater cycling cities that are often of of smaller size. And on top of that, keep in mind that Amsterdam was not always that way. This shows you a before-and-after picture, 1970s and 2020. The 1970s, the Netherlands were going the same way as most other countries uh, in, in the West. Uh, increasing motorization, cyclists are pushed to the side, the roadway and the city are given to the cars. And you can almost see how bad the air quality is there in this picture on the left. Today, the same street is a bicycle street, uh, cars are banned, motorized traffic is banned from the street. We have bicyclings having the right-of-way and, of course, pedestrians to the side on the, uh, on the walkway. A similar example, which is sort of uh, uh, an example for for what happened in many German cities um, over the last 50, 60 years, this is a small town in the southwestern part of Germany. In 1953, we have a a couple of bikes, we have a trolley line running there and some cars. And uh, I put this arrow there because you'll have to remember um, that that fountain. Due to uh, policy changes, and changes in the built environment. There's the fountain. By 1972, this same intersection is an intersection for automobiles. And the whole city is a city for automobiles. It's built around the car. Uh, This new ugly building is built and you can see how cyclists and pedestrians are pushed to the side. Ironically, this is a postcard that we found in the city's archive. So the city in the 70s thought, this is so great what we achieved. Let's put it on a postcard and show the world what we've done Um, again. Ironically, the little boy there, or little girl to the left, is almost hit uh, by that uh, red uh, Porsche or red Volkswagen in there. But that's a city designed around, uh, around cars. Again, due to local policy choices, there's the fountain. That's what it looks like today. The ugly building is still there, but the same intersection is an intersection where only pedestrians and cyclists can be. Motorized traffic is banned. So local policy has changed from being oriented around the car to what's being oriented around around people. The last one of these, this is Freiburg in Germany, about 200-220,000 inhabitants. Again, in 1950s, we have a trolley running there on this bridge and we have automobiles. Uh, Going with the times, by the 1960s, the trolley was torn out. It's the mode of the past and the city is starting to gear to be auto-oriented and promote the automobile, the mode of the future. Today, this very bridge is a bridge that's only open for bicycles pedestrians can walk on the side and they build another bridge where a trolley uh, is running now across but cars are banned from this again local policy choices have a huge impact in how we can use uh, facilities here is an example of two cities that are following amsterdam's uh, footsteps on the top we have portland oregon and we see in 1990 there are a couple of black lines in that map that show the bikeways they had in the background the, the salmon color and the yellow color and later massive we get red shows you the bike commute levels and the more yellow and the more red the higher the bike commute levels uh, at the bottom we have uh, sevilla in spain in 2005 we see in green their bikeways only very few uh, bikeways Advancing a decade on the top, in Portland we see how the bikeway network has grown and how bike commuting starts to, to increase. At the bottom we see a huge expansion, only three years of bikeways, mainly because a new government came in that was uh, about pedestrianizing the city center and promoting bicycling throughout the city. Adding another 15 years in Portland, we see how the bikeway network has gotten ever denser. and Now bike commuting has really increased uh, throughout the city. And at the bottom, 10 more years in Seville, we see how their bikeway network has grown and has gotten denser and has more and more uh, connections in it.
1: It's crucial to slow down cars and trucks as well. Uh, all studies show that uh, speeding, Motor vehicles are the greatest danger to both pedestrians and to cyclists. This is from the World Health Organization. It's a, a graph that you'll see all over the place. But what it shows is uh, that 30 kilometers an hour is a crucial uh, threshold here. Once uh, motor vehicle speeds increase beyond 30 kilometers an hour, the likelihood, the, the is that you are going to the probability that you that the that the motor vehicle is going to kill this. In this case, is a pedestrian goes up exponentially it just goes up by the time you are at uh, 50 uh, i guess about 55 kilometers per hour um, there's about a 95 percent chance that the pedestrian or cyclist is going to get killed uh, when hit by a car uh, which means it is absolutely crucial probably the integral one of the most important ways to inc- increase cycling safety is to slow down cars. And there's a number of ways to do it. One of those ways is traffic calming. And this slide is showing you an illustration uh, from Freiburg. This is a very, very typical arrangement. So we're talking about maybe 50 to 80 percent of residential streets, 50 percent in Germany. It's actually 80 percent in the Netherlands. Uh, But this is a very common facility. First of all, there's a 30 kilometer per hour speed limit and it's area wide. It's not just one street here, one street there, but that just encourages motorists to find the streets that aren't traffic calmed. It has to be area wide. Uh, street narrowing, you can see here at both ends. and over the course of the street as well, but the crucial is narrowing the street uh, at the ends, and you can see it used to be much wider. They put in bike parking, they put in benches, they put in shrubbery, um, and by narrowing the street, and every study does show that the narrower the street, the slower the traffic is, no matter what the traffic, uh, the speed uh, limit is. So this is something that's very typical, um, and has greatly reduced uh, uh, fatalities and injuries of motorists, of, I'm sorry, of uh, cyclists and pedestrians, and the number one beneficiary is children. They found a 70 to 90% reduction in child fatalities on these residential streets as a result of introducing traffic calming. So if you really care a lot about children's lives, traffic calming is something to really, really think about. Another example, this is uh, traffic calming in London a city you may have heard of. Um, they have the so-called low traffic neighborhoods, LTNs. Uh, virtually all of inner London, by the way, has a speed limit of 20 miles per hour. Uh, they still use miles from the UK. Uh, in this particular case, you see that they've narrowed the road, just like the, we saw on the previous slide of, of Germany. They narrow the road, they they change the roadway surface. Uh, you have a slightly different kind of a pavement, you know, cobblestones here. Um, You also make it, uh, uh, motor vehicles are not allowed beyond this point, going in that direction where the cyclist uh, is headed. Uh, So you're making it, uh, you're discouraging through traffic. It basically makes through motorist traffic impossible. Uh, And that's great because you don't want through traffic in residential neighborhoods. The other way you can do this is installing these so-called diverters uh, with cut-throughs for cyclists. Uh, but motorists, it's a dead end. Uh, these are two, two examples from a uh, Quebec City and Montreal uh, up in Canada. Uh, you, you did the same thing here, this is in, uh, in Melbourne, and you can see this used to be just a regular street, too wide, of course, um, and, and because of all the rat running and the through traffic and uh, many uh, fatalities and injuries, including many uh, of children, uh, they, they introduced this blockage for cars, but a cut through again for cyclists and pedestrians. It's really, really important to eliminate through traffic, through motor vehicle traffic from residential neighborhoods. They're doing something great in Perth uh, there in Australia. They've introduced something called Safe Active Streets. There are six now in Perth, uh, and they have these various sort of. Um, uh, I guess you would call them slow points. They they introduce the narrowing of the street at various points. Uh, you're only seeing this at one place on the street, but it continues at other points on the street as well, and that. By narrowing the street, again, at certain points, these pinch points, uh, it forces cars to slow down. Uh, plus, there's also a uh, 30 kilometer per hour speed limit that helps. And you can see it's safe enough now. This, so this is these are parents and their kids uh, cycling to school together. That's a great thing. Uh, so safe active streets in Perth. This is uh, it's important to explain this. To um, there's a big trend now in north america I'm not sure about australia but anyway in canadian and american cities uh something that used to be called bike boulevards they're now being rebranded as neighborhood greenways because they're good not to, not just for cyclists but for all the residents of the of the neighborhood and for uh, uh pedestrians as well uh sometimes they're even called urban greenways but they're not just for cyclists that's for sure what is it well it's a combination of various things first of all it's traffic calmed at 20 miles per hour. You can see that in the sign up to the right, so it's about 30 kilometers per hour. That's the same traffic, com- uh, com- traffic coming speed as you find in most European cities, and it combines various kinds of infrastructure to facilitate cycling cycling at a fairly uh, rapid uh, pace. So in some cases, here you have a contraflow lane on, in one direction. And you have one, uh, so for the the cars, it's a one-way street. For bicyclists, it's two ways. Uh, On some stretches of this route, so the overall it's a route of different kinds of facilities and where it's heavier traffic, you'll have a protected bike lane. Where there's almost no traffic at all, you have a residential neighborhood with very little car traffic, you may not need a facility at all. But this is a very big trend in many, many cities now around the United States and in Canada. Next. This will surprise you. This is what suburban traffic calming looks like in Germany. Uh, There's no special infrastructure for cyclists or for pedestrians. There's no sidewalks, no bike lanes. Uh, This is a a completely shared street Um, by law. uh, And it varies weirdly enough from one city to another. uh, The speed limit is five to seven kilometers per hour, that's slow. and the signs that you see to the upper left uh, and the lower right this is the sign it said this street is for sharing by children playing in the street cyclists pedestrians it is not something primarily for cars in fact by law motorists must yield to cyclists pedestrians and children playing in these streets and if you as a motorist injure or kill a cyclist or pedestrian or child playing you are in big trouble the law is all on the side of the pedestrian or the cyclist um so i just thought you might be interested that this is very 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 common this is not these are not exceptional uh, cases at all this is what traffic calming looks like because, and shared streets in the suburban areas of germany Okay, now we are trying something that we haven't rehearsed. We're trying to show you a
2: video of a shared street on a main shopping street in Vienna, Austria. It should run for about a minute and uh, then I'll, I'll bring you back to the presentation. I have to start it. This video shows you another type of a shared street This time, not in the neighborhood, but this is on a main street, a main shopping street in Vienna, Austria. Uh, In this area, pedestrians, cyclists, uh, scooters, and motorists are sharing the space. The maximum speed limit would be 20 kilometers per hour. But as you can see here, the the cars have to yield to pedestrians and cyclists and others. So they're going through very, very slowly. To the right here, you see some uh, parking but it's not a permanent parking, it's sort of temporary parking for pickup and drop off. And you can see how the different modes can exist at a very slow pace in this main shopping street here. Okay, we're going back to the presentation, which you should um, see now there are, of course many other policies that help promote uh, bicycling and before we end just a, a little bit about, about those so bike transit integration is very important that typically takes the form of either taking the bicycle on the transit vehicle as on the upper right uh, on the bus there in, in Minneapolis about 85% of all buses in the US have bike racks in, in front of them now or as you see in the lower left um, um, having the, the bicycle uh, on uh, rail vehicles often only at um uh, off-peak hours or in certain cars or at certain doors of the vehicles the other part of bike transit integration is uh, bike parking at uh, train stations and, and and transit stops as we see on the upper left there in washington dc uh, in the middle left in freiburg and on the right there in in groningen in the in the netherlands um these uh, Bike parking garages provide um, protection from the weather, they, can, they also provide uh, theft protection, often though as we see in D.C. and Freiburg there, you have to pay to get access to those and the additional benefit of the, of the theft protection. Bicycle parking in general is important, also throughout the city, as it is in buildings, in offices, etc. In the city here, we see it in, in Portland, where they took out uh, two car parking spots for about 20 bike parking uh, places in a so-called bicycling parking corral. On the right hand side, there we have a bike parking machine, a bike parking robot uh, in Nagoya, in Japan, where the bicycle goes in and then it either goes up or it goes down. The bike is is stored uh, automatically and you can retrieve the bike uh, through the screen there in about a minute uh, or so. Uh, other policies uh, to promote bicycling include ciclovias they came from latin america these are events where uh, roadways are closed to motorized traffic and the space is given to pedestrian cyclists inline skaters um, scooters etc uh, for either uh, hours days weekends weeks and and longer uh, time periods it gives people a sense of what the space could be like if we wouldn't use it for moving and storing parking uh, motor vehicles. Bike sharing has proven very successful, at least in, in, in Europe and in, in, in North America, um, to attract different users to bicycling, often those that don't want to worry about maintenance, those who don't want to worry about theft, uh, those who may not have a space to park their bicycle, uh, or those who may live up a couple flights of stairs and don't want to carry uh, their bicycle up, and of course, tourists or, or, or travelers. Uh, Promotional campaigns are important, bike to work days happen in in many countries annually where employers try to entice uh, employees to cycle to work hopefully have a good time and continue uh, riding to work and there are many other e- events uh, like that um, there are also ex- uh, bike to school days to encourage uh, uh, children to cycle to school bike training is important in, in Denmark the Netherlands and Germany bike training is part of school between second and third grade uh, many children learn how to ride a bike in school they first learn in the classroom about the rules of the road then they practice in a traffic garden and then in the end Not always, but often the police or those who administer the test also take them out into the real world to cycle on real bikeway facilities. In the US, most of this bike training is voluntary with the exception of of Washington, DC. Training for adults is also very important, especially in countries with low cycling levels, where adults may not have ridden a bike for a very long time. They want to get back into bicycling. They don't feel fully comfortable with the rules of the road or how to ride a bicycle. So bike training. Is, is very important uh, in addition motorist training is important every motorist to get a driver's license should be taught about the rules of the road and the, the rights of the road uh, as they pertain to to bicyclists and, and, and pedestrians and they should be taught how to avoid endangering and avoid uh, killing and hitting uh, pedestrians and, and cyclists um, last one here is many cities have implemented uh, so-called bicycling benchmarking we're in a regular interval, maybe every other year, Uh, they are collecting data about bicycling, bikeway infrastructure, uh, bike safety, the condition of the bikeway infrastructure, cycling levels, they may implement surveys of cyclists, survey of city residents about bicycling, and then they use the outcomes of that to benchmark where they are, where they wanna go, and how far they have come uh, looking back.
1: Hold on folks, we're almost finished. (laughs) The best ideas in the world are useless unless they can be implemented. And the last three chapters of the book focused almost exclusively on how to implement the kinds of infrastructure programs and policies that we've been talking about in this presentation. One of the keys is letting the public know, publicize the individual and societal benefits of cycling. For example, the health benefits. People can be healthier uh, and happier, less stressed out. Uh, citizen citizen participation is crucial so that the public feels involved in what's being done. If you have controversial policies, implement them in stages. Traffic calming, for example, in Vienna, if you go back 25 years ago, maybe it was 2% of streets in Vienna were traffic calmed. Now it's 85%. They did it little by little, and it was so, so successful that one street after another, one neighborhood after another, insisted on having traffic calming in their neighborhood as well. It's important to combine disincentives for car use together with the incentives for cycling that we've been discussing so far. And slowing down car speeds, reducing the amount of car parking, reducing the time that you're allowed to park. It's all They're all important. Um, they have to be combined, these carrots and sticks. Uh, it's advocacy is crucial, absolutely crucial. Uh, we found in every country and every city that the combination of national state and local bike advocacy is what has really provided a much of the public support for improved cycling conditions over time. So that has been a really, really important role. Uh, And and advocates and anyone who's in favor of cycling really needs to work with politicians uh, and also sustainability advocates, not just cycling advocates, but sustainability advocates uh, overall. Uh, And again, if you want to say chapter 19 is a case study of Portland and of Seville, Spain. And it describes step by step in great detail exactly how those two cities were able to implement those dramatic improvements in cycling networks and levels of cycling that Ralph described uh, in showing that slide. Finally, last slide, folks. Cycling infrastructure is crucial. It is absolutely necessary, and to the extent possible, it is very important to separate it from motor vehicle traffic. Why? Not only does it make cycling overall safer, but it encourages more women to cycle, older adults to cycle, children to cycle. It it increases, it broadens the spectrum of cyclists. And that's important because when you're driving as a motorist, if you see women cycling and older adults cycling and children cycling, It's just humanizes cycling. I don't know how else to describe that, but it's really important. Motorists will gain more respect for cyclists as they see all of society out there cycling and not just young men on racing bikes. The second thing that Ralph was really talking about is you to integrate a package of programs. Cycling infrastructure is absolutely key. It's absolutely necessary, but it's not sufficient. You really need to have an integrated package of programs and policies with push and pull factors, such as we were talking about before, slowing down cars, for example, eliminating car traffic in residential neighborhoods. The last point I'll make is the theme of equity and social justice runs throughout the book from chapter one to 21. And we have an entire chapter, in fact, that's on equity and social justice. And the two co authors, in fact, had written entire books on the issues of equity and social justice in cycling so it's a great chapter but we also asked authors of every single chapter in the book within their topic area to examine how you could include currently marginalized groups lower income groups uh, group people of color um, Uh, into our cycling infrastructure, improve the cycling infrastructure for low-income neighborhoods. Because often it's the case, the best infrastructure, um, the best parking, the only bike sharing is in high-income areas of the city and not in lower-income areas. And currently many organizations are now making an explicit effort to make cycling more inclusive to include those marginalized groups and marginalized neighborhoods into the cycling uh, decision-making process uh, so it's really should be prioritized including vulnerable, risk-averse, and disadvantaged groups at every stage of decision-making. Okay, folks, I'm sorry we went on for so long. We were sort of low energy because it's late in the evening here on the East Coast of the United States, but uh, all this information uh, you can find in the book in great detail in some chapters we barely were able to even touch on. And uh, as, I, uh, as I think you know that the, the uh, there will be a, a PDF of this PowerPoint that will be posted on the Ostros website, also the video of this presentation will be on the Austroads website. Thank you so very, very much for your patience. Uh, Sorry we went over time, but we had a lot of information to present. Please forgive us. Now we look forward to your questions.
3: Thank you very much, John and Ralph, for such a comprehensive presentation. And uh, obviously I'm sure some audience members would uh, love to 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 read the book uh, for even more detail but we do have a lot of uh, very interesting questions i'm going to try and triage a little bit of, uh, a bit of them and uh for for the next 10 to 15 minutes if you don't mind uh, and hopefully the audience will uh, stick with us a little bit longer than uh, maybe expected so that we can go through those things um uh maybe to start things um and not sure uh, if it's for you john or ralph uh, we will see how we go um, we uh, obviously developing cycling infrastructure is costly uh, as we know like everything costs building infrastructure costs um, um and and often it's uh, in comparison to uh, building infrastructure for for vehicles for cars uh is obviously cheaper but it's not necessarily that easy to get these decisions made um the question is do we need to have a political breakthrough before we can have an infrastructure breakthrough maybe for in you
1: term, case, I'll, I'll just start and then ralph can follow up but the, as shown both in seville and in portland in great detail the answer is yes you really do. In Seville, it was really uh, the, the change of political parties that made all the difference uh, in the world. Uh, the first the, the change to the, I'm not sure, I think it's like a social democratic party uh, in Spain. And when they came into power, uh, they're the ones that in three or four years vastly expanded the cycling infrastructure. Then the conservatives won and was sort of on hold. And then now the progressive social democrats are back in power, and they're pushing the infrastructure again. in Portland. Uh, uh you've had a case of uh i think without interruption all of the mayors of portland over the last 30 years have been very pro cycling so it's definitely sort of a, a political it hasn't been a sudden thing in portland much much more gradual it's uh, sort of more, much more continuous than the case in Seville, in spain uh in the case of uh, looking at uh, ralph will tell you more details but the case of frankfurt i thought it was great they held a public referendum and the citizens said We don't care whether you politicians like it or not. We require that you implement policies and programs to increase infrastructure and so forth. Okay, Ralph, let let you get a word in edgewise. Yes, I I think those two things go together. You have the special cases of
2: what we saw in in Sevilla and in Spain where a government comes in and sort of has a a mandate. But very often cities starting at a low cycling level um, are starting at a low level with public support because not many people are riding bikes. And not many people would support bikeway infrastructure. Um, when looking at, at such at such cities, um, often bike planners and bike advocates can start building support over time. But it's a it's a very long and and slow process. The example of Frankfurt that John alluded to, and also Washington D.C. They they hired new bike planners in the 2000s, and those bike planners first had to build relationships within the city administration. They had to build relationships with traffic engineers. They had to build relationships with with, with land use planners etc to to make sure that bicycling is included in the decision making and then initially they found uh, the low hanging fruits they found roadway corridors that uh, had excess roadway capacity and when they were um, redoing the road when they were resurfacing it they were restriping it and they were taking out car travel lanes and putting in bikeways but nobody really noticed because the capacity uh, was there and so so bit by bit they made the city more bike friendly and in Frankfurt for a long time they they put in uh, a lot of bike parking when they uh, pulled back parking in neighborhoods to increase visibility of the intersections for drivers and for pedestrians and they put in bike parking whenever they did that so over time bike parking got much better in Frankfurt and then as they it, this bit by bit small process bicycling levels increased interest in bicycling increased and more people were supportive for bicycling measures in not in dc but in frankfurt it sort of went to the extreme that there was this effort at getting a referendum started on bicycling measures and then the city government sort of stopped that referendum and on their own they um they made a policy to make frankfurt a bike friendly city over the next year sort of because of the pressure of the people. But that would not have been possible in the early 2000s. It was sort of a step-by-step, bit-by-bit approach to build this uh, this support over time. Brilliant. Thank you, John,
3: Ralph. Um, next one, uh, and building a little bit on this, and and you would be familiar here in Australia, we've got a federal and, and state-based system um, and a bit similar to the US in in some ways. Uh, how do you see the the the, the share uh, of, of responsibility between the different levels of government in promoting and 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 delivering cycling infrastructure?
2: Ralph,
4: <laughs>
2: so it's a it's a difficult it's it's a difficult balance. So um, one one thing is what happened here in in the US is that over the last twenty thirty years. There were dedicated matching funds for bicycling projects so the federal government had matching funds when local local governments or state governments came up with uh, their own projects they could have federal funds that were dedicated to bicycling what also happened over time was that more and more funding that used to be just narrowly dedicated for roadways was made more flexible so that the local governments could in fact, decide how to use those funds. Do we want to use them for roadways or do we want to use them for something else? I think it's both of these. It's it's the the matching funds to entice projects for walking and cycling, and it's also making the funds that are dedicated for roadways more flexible to allow local governments um, to decide. Of course, there's a big debate here in the US. Very often you hear the argument that the federal government should not be involved in bicycling at all. It's a local issue and it goes sort of back and forth. But over the over the last 20, 30 years, we have seen massive increase in federal funds that can be used for bicycling on the local level, if the local government
1: chooses to, to do so. I would just note yep. one, one thing, that is in Canada and in the United States, um, you have both, you have matching federal funds and matching state funds. I think most of the funding, and it's certainly true also in, in Germany, for example, most of the funding is still local government funding. But what happens is it is encouraged by the federal or the state match. And used Canada is, is actually very similar in some ways, a little bit colder than Australia, but similar in, in other ways. And, and that is that uh, the, the federal government had not really taken much of a role in urban transportation. Period. In fact, it was excluded, it was prohibited from doing so by the constitution. Well, that's changed now, and the, the federal government in Canada now does provide significant matching funds for cycling and other sustainable transportation projects Um, and then individual provinces so the province of Quebec the province of Ontario they have their matching funds for the local government so it all sort of works together uh, but you have to have the local funding as well of course. and what we've also
2: seen in some in some countries just one, one second are if the federal government or the national government is interested in bicycling we've seen showcase projects where the federal government gives money to certain localities to try out certain policies or to boost bicycling there and and then measure it and see how it works. Here in the US, there were four cities chosen, I think in 2005, Um, I think Canada is thinking about a similar project uh, in in, in the UK that exists. We've seen that in in, in Denmark. So the national government can also be a leader in this by dedicating funds to, to specific projects or cities. Brilliant,
3: thank you both. Um, on, on a slightly on a different topic, uh, you've talked uh, at some stage, and we won't go through the slide again, but um, you talked about, uh, see the, the push in many countries towards 30 kilometers an hour speed limit for local streets. Uh, obviously, that's something that's being discussed a fair bit here, uh, down under, in Australia and New Zealand. Um, and what we see is more of a push towards 40 kilometers an hour, maybe as an interim step. Uh, um towards 30 but keen uh, to hear any advice you may have on how uh, countries like like australia um, do work towards implementing 30 kilometers an hour speed limit which as you can understand is great from, in many ways but is also a challenge to drive that change
1: well i was when i was living in sydney i would uh for a while i was walking about i guess it was two miles from where i was living in stanmore to where the university of sydney is and i would see these signs saying slow street 40 kilometers per hour i'm thinking that's slow <laughs> but uh, it's, four, it's 40 is better than 50. <laughs> i mean it's a little bit of a progress i mean as ralph said step by step but I, that, that 30 kilometers per hour really does seem to be sort of a worldwide standard and that once you get above 30 kilometers an hour, it really does make things much more dangerous. And in terms of residential neighborhoods in particular, I think if I I were trying to convince politicians to do this, I would focus on the benefits for children. Because every single study I've shown shows that the children living in these residential neighborhoods are the main beneficiaries. Uh, it's not just for cyclists, these are for kids playing in the street, walking across the street. It reduces the, the noise in the neighborhood, the air pollution in the neighborhood, it makes it more livable, these neighborhoods. Um, but in terms of a single sort of rationale, uh, if I mean, politicians, you got it to the, you know, There's children whose lives are at stake here, and it's really worth uh, slowing down cars uh, in these residential neighborhoods. Even if you don't do it on the arterial, the main roads, at least do it in residential neighborhoods. And that's where most bike trips start at any rate at home. Yeah, that's how the... As John alluded, the children's safety was also in the Netherlands
2: at the root of traffic calming, and how sort of it, it came about. It was at the root of traffic calming in in Germany when the German engineers went over to the Netherlands and started importing it. It was actually a grassroots movement at at, at the time. The federal government didn't really want that, and and. Similarly, here in the US, many cities now have gone down to 20 miles per hour or want to go to 20 miles per hour. Often they cannot do it because the roadways are in the control of the state and the state doesn't want to go in the city down to 20 miles per hour. They want to leave it at 35 or or even higher and the sort of uh, battles going on between those. But New York City now and also Washington DC on many roadways went down to to 20 miles per hour. And I want to add one more point here, and it was not part of the question, but I think as much as the speed limit matters, the physical change to the roadway matters as well. To change the roadway so that it's adapted to the speed. Here in the US, we have so many roadways that are over-engineered, their neighborhood streets, they're huge, they're wide, and if you go 20 miles per hour, it feels like you are standing because the roadway is designed almost like a, a highway standard, and so you have to change the roadway to adapt it to the to the speed uh, as well. I don't know. I know that was not part of the question, but I think that's no, no, as, that's, as that's
3: important. If, I'm I'm thinking if there's enough space, well, that should give uh, room for 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 dedicated uh, bicycle path uh, and 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 other modes. But uh, yes, I I take your point, right? That's that's really interesting. Uh, Maybe a, a final question and, and, and uh, maybe a bit or, or, or quite controversial, I'm sure, uh, on the worldwide scale, as you may know, in Australia, we've got uh, helmet laws uh, across all of the states where we, we wear helmets. You've shown a few examples uh, from obviously different countries where people are not wearing helmets when they're cycling. Um, what, what, what's your view on, 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 on helmets and, and uh, in terms of the, the, the safety benefits versus the uh, inconvenience it may represent for some cyclists in terms of limiting their use?
1: Well, I uh, I guess everyone has a different opinion on this, probably, but uh, I'm not in favor of cycling helmet laws that require, at least for adults, I think they probably make sense for kids, to tell you the truth, because I'm not sure that, that kids can make this, this decision uh, on their own. But I, I think for adults, I think it's, uh, I, I think that they should be allowed to make that decision on their own. Um, and you might notice the, the very cover of the book, not a single person was wearing a helmet. And that's the Netherlands. Uh, there's You won't find a photo from the Netherlands where bicyclists are wearing helmets because no one does. And yet their, their safety level is many, many times higher than it is in the United States uh, or in Australia. Uh, and, and bike helmet use is actually fairly common here in the United States and in, in Canada. Um, and, and I think in Australia, it's a law. I, mean, I think states all uniformly have laws that require helmet use. But but when then when you look at the result, it's cycling. It hasn't made cycling any safer uh, here in the United States. But I personally, I must tell you, I personally wear a helmet all the time, even if I'm riding a bike on a greenway or on neighborhood streets. I just do it. Um, But I don't think that adults should be forced to do it. Uh, That's just my opinion. What do you think, Ralph? I mean, it's a it's a controversial issue. But I want to
2: differentiate two two points here. One is. I think nobody would contest that a helmet protects you when you fall on on your head. It's just good sense to wear a helmet because when you fall on your head, it protects your head. But, and and that's a little bit of the the, the mistake focusing solely on the helmet, a helmet alone does not make safe cycling. Safe cycling is a safe system for cyclists. That includes the bikeways that are safe, that includes lower car travel speeds, that includes motorists that are trained. So we shouldn't mistake the helmet or a helmet law with making cycling safe. It protects your head when you fall, but we wanna avoid anybody from having to fall. So we have to build the infrastructure and the safety in the system. So we have to take a a systems approach and make a system that's safe uh, for cyclists. Uh, And then a a last point is with the the bike helmet law or or the bike helmet, it's sort of pushing the safety uh, on the cyclists. So you're responsible for your own safety. We let the motorists alone, they can do what they want and you, you have to wear a helmet. I think we cannot focus solely on the helmet. We have to focus on making the system safe and avoiding the crashes. On top of that, wearing a helmet is makes logical
1: sense because it protects your head. i just like to make one comment. Ralph didn't used to wear a bike helmet when he was cycling to work every day. His two kids told him, Papa, are you crazy? We don't want you to fall on your head. You're going to hurt yourself. And then he finally decided to wear a helmet. So sometimes kids are full of wisdom.
2: <laughs> no, they, they, were actually, they were
1: actually—they
2: smarter than that when they said it and they were three or four and they said, Papa, wouldn't it be silly if you would fall on your head? And it would be silly. <laughs> so I'm wearing a helmet now.
3: Yeah, no, that's good. Well, yeah, they, they get great influence sometimes, uh, if not authority on us actually. Uh thank you, john Thank you, Ralph, for your time today. Uh there's a few more questions we could go through, of course, but we'll have to stop here for today. Uh we, we thank you all, and obviously uh I'm gonna say uh we always rose, we thank um cycling and walking and said uh we ride Australia and Heart Foundation to help us obviously connect in the last few weeks and, and make this webinar possible today. So thanks again, the, the slides are available, the recording will be uh, will be available on the Oswald's website. So I'm sure there will be a few more people listening in and we may try and uh, answer to some of the, the, the questions we received offline afterwards. Uh, we we'll see how we go.
1: Um, thanks again, John and Ralph. Just um, one, we, Ralph and, and I so. would just like to thank everyone in the audience once more. Thank you so, so much for your patience. And thank you for being down there, down under. <laughs> thank, thank you very much.
2: You,
1: thank you, Ralph. Um, we've got
3: Sam Bolton, who is the executive officer for Sacking and Walking ANZ on the line. Uh, obviously, Sacking and Walking ANZ brings together the road transport agencies, but also uh, some industry groups uh, on, on the matter of Sacking and Walking. Hello, Sam. You wanted to say a few words before we, we finish on this webinar
4: yeah thank you very much Richard and thank you very much to John and Ralph for a great presentation as a result of this uh, I just wanted to announce well uh, and say that uh, cycling and walking Australia New Zealand are very excited to announce that we're having a series of communities practice Uh, the first one will be cycling for sustainable cities coming out of this webinar One caveat I might add is that uh, we may discuss, as a part of the community of practice, we'll discuss whether we do want to focus on cycling or whether it may get active transport. And um, if we did want to focus on cycling, we'd have a separate one for walking later on. If you're interested, uh, have a look. There's further information on our website under the news section and submit an EOI using the link on the slide shown. And if you've got any questions or want any further information, just contact me. Thank you very much.
3: Thank you, Sam. And uh, back to you, I guess, Ekaterina, uh, to close this webinar.
0: Yep, thank you very much, Richard, um, and thanks so much everybody for such a fantastic uh, and very interesting session. Um, and I just have a couple of slides left uh, before you uh, before we will let you go. Um, so um, our future webinars, we have um, a couple of sessions. On the 26th of October, we will talk about the outcomes of the review and reset of the national harmonization of temporary traffic management practice project. Um, And on the 11th of November, please join us to hear about the new Austroads Guide to Transport Operations and Management, um, which is the former guide to traffic management. So for more information and to register for the sessions, please visit um, our website. Um, and as usual after we close out today's session a questionnaire will pop up on your screen please take a couple of minutes uh, let us know what you liked what didn't like about the session your feedback really helps us to um, shape our future webinar program Um, and once again this session is being recorded and we will let you know when the recording is available on our website so thanks again everyone Uh, stay well and safe and enjoy the rest of your day we will see you next time